Welcome to the Jesus Said Love podcast. This is a space where we talk about what it means to awaken hope and empower change. Listen, for over a decade, Em and I have been fostering relationships with men and women who've been impacted by the commercial sex industry. And it's through those relationships that Jesus Said Love was born. We figured it was time to talk about what this ministry has taught us and is still teaching us along the way. I promise it's going to be a place of conversation and story. And we hope you learn something new. Maybe you see something in a new way. Fun fact, you're going to hear music because Brett and I are musicians. Yep. We can't just talk. Nope. we got to sing and play too. We do. Here's the deal, guys. Our hope is that as you hear these stories, that you'll tap into your own story and that you'll be encouraged to live and love well like Jesus. Hey, Emily. What's up, Brett? Hey, so I'm super excited about this uh this podcast episode we're about to jump into. Yeah. Are we saying right here that we previously, that we pre-recorded? Yeah, yeah, we were going to say that, but okay. you kind of already just let the cat out of the bag. Well, so I, everybody knows that we've now pre-recorded our interview, and so now yes. we're doing kind of the intro before. Yeah, we that's a different way for us, but I'm excited about it because now I can think back to the conversation and tell all of you listeners you're really going to want to listen to this. It is oh my goodness. the subject of narcissism and how narcissism has impacted and continues to impact our faith communities um, is something that we just don't talk about. We, we throw narcissism around very loosely and we don't really understand what it's about. And I do remember a few years ago, I, I don't know which Brene Brown book, I may have been daring greatly, um, when she talks about you know how narcissism has its roots in shame. And mm-hmm. you're going to hear that come up as we dialogue about it. So on the podcast is Chuck DeGroat. He is a therapist, professor of pastoral care and Christian spirituality at Western Theological Seminary in Holland, Michigan. Um, and he has served as a pastor at churches in Orlando, San Francisco. He founded two church-based counseling centers. He's a therapist, like I said, a spiritual director, and he's got two books out. Well, three now, but he has a book called <laughs> Toughest People to Love. How about that? Wow. Wholeheartedness. And then this one, When Narcissism Comes to Church, Healing Your Community from Emotional and Spiritual Abuse. Okay, so we don't know this guy, right? Like, right. We don't know him. We yeah, I know him. of him. Right. Like, I've heard of him. him. We've heard people sure. reference him, so he's kind of a thing in, in different circles like that. And I feel like we found a new friend. Well, you know... He's just a he's a he's a quality person. He's just a high quality individual, <laughs> and it was a high quality conversation. Yes, and I feel like I want to call him right back right now. Go, hey, when are we going to get dinner? <laughs> I know, but he right? lives in Michigan. He lives I don't in think Michigan. It's happen. Right. But I think that you're going to enjoy, okay. and I th- I think you need to listen. You might even need to take some notes. It is a wonderful conversation about a subject that is not necessarily wonderful because I do think all of us at some point have encountered someone who is a narcissist and perhaps inflicted some sort of trauma on us. And most of us, as you will learn, um, I think the other beautiful thing in this conversation is that a lot of us struggle with narcissistic traits ourselves. And we have to ruthlessly confront those because it's rooted and embedded in a shame identity. And so I think that you're going to find courage. You're going to find hope, healing, no matter if you're the one who's been wounded by a narcissist or you're like, man, 
you know, I really struggle with some narcissistic traits myself. I like power. I like control. I like to be noticed. I love to be adored. Um, Those are things that we just don't make space for to say. And we have to say them. If we're going to be healed, we have to confess. We've got to be able to say. So enjoy this conversation. We would love your feedback. So here we go. Well, welcome to the show, Chuck. We are so excited to have you on the Jesus Said Love podcast talking about a subject that um, a lot of people are familiar with in terms, but might not be familiar with in maybe how it's actually played out. So for those of you listening, we are going to be talking and diving into narcissism because Chuck DeGroat has a new book out called When narcissism comes to church. Oh my gosh, that makes my chest hurt. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that the way you want to spend your next 45 minutes, everyone? <laughs> Just right, talking welcome. about narcissism because mm-hmm. I know that we've all probably been impacted by it. Yeah. <laughs> we we really have. So Chuck, tell me, why did you why did you write this book? Why is this a message that we need to be talking yeah. about right now? Uh it was so hard. Um it is so hard, even still, to continue to talk about um I had actually, the, the book I wrote before this was called Wholeheartedness. I'd much rather talk about wholeheartedness, and it feels like sort of the flip side of narcissism. But uh, I was doing I was doing some work, some consulting with churches probably five, four or five years ago. And in one particular instance, I remember I remember the like the the pastors who are being impacted. A number of them came to me and said, "Like, where? What's like a good go-to resource to understand some of these dynamics?" And I sort of fumbled and bumbled, and I was, I was like, "I just don't. I'm not sure." There's this and this and this and this, and they said, "Well, why don't you write it?" And um, my initial gut response was, "No way. I do not want to write that book. That feels too painful. I'll have to dig into how I've been hurt. I'll have to dig into how I've lived out this stuff." Uh, and dismissed it. But yeah, maybe it probably took another couple of years to kind of get to the place where a few people egged me on to say, hey, I think we need a resource like this. Mm. Yeah. Talk about like how as a culture, because I I love in the book, you, you really break it down between what these systems of narcissism can look like and then what it looks like on a very personal level, what it looks like on a spiritual pastoral level. But what do you think is... I mean, we really are living in a narcissistic culture. Have we always yeah. been, or is this kind yeah. of a newly, like we're just more aware of it now, or we're not yeah. aware, so it, it seems inflamed? Like, what's happening? Yeah, that's a good question. And maybe maybe it's the case that we have better language to put around it now. You know, I, like I always say that this is all as old as Genesis chapter 3. Um, Adam and Eve grasped, and we've been grasping ever since. And, and I, I, I do think shame is the jet fuel for narcissism. And that's a big part of that story. But, but then I, I often think, um, look at the church and it's, uh, it's, it's relationship to power. You know, ever since Constantine saw the, the sign of the cross in the sky and the words in this sign conquer, you know, mm. we have been like, uh, addicted to the power that, uh, that comes with, with relationships to empire, um, to st- strong leaders. And, um, anyway, all that said, like, it's been around for a long time, right? We, we, uh, we, we have the, the 
the sexual abuse scandal in the Catholic Church. And, you know, as I've gotten to know folks within the Catholic Church, they've said, oh, this has been around for a long time. You're just only finding out about it now. So mm-hmm. like narcissism, abuse of power has been around for a long time. But I do think that we have more language now for it. I mean, I, I think um, even in par- writing this book in part, and I know uh, again, guy named Wade Mullen is writing a book on abuse of power. Mm-hmm. Diane Langberg's coming out with, mm-hmm. I mean, a number of us are writing on this. There's no coincidence that that uh, we're trying to put words to what people are talking about when they talk about Me Too, Church Too, abuse, abuse of power, and all that stuff. Mm. So when we when we talk about, I'm, as you're talking, I'm thinking, okay, so, so Emily and I come from an evangelical background, probably mm-hmm. a little more on the charismatic side, you know, probably freer Baptist, I would say, in that context. Yeah. One of the things that I have always struggled with, and I think it's probably where I find my own maybe trauma, mm-hmm. we'll call it trauma, I should yeah. say that, yeah. um, is this idea of authority. And that mm-hmm. word is is used heavily in charismatic communities. It's like, yeah. what is your authority and your covering yeah. and this, that, and the other? And, yeah. and while it's well-intentioned, it tends to get abused. And so yeah. how you talk to me a little bit about how that kind of sneaks in under what is a good word and a biblical word, authority, right. but yeah. then gets totally skewed to hell. And yeah, right. now we have a blood trail of bodies left. Yeah, right. Wake. Yeah. I mean, I not a whole lot keeps me uh, a Christian. Nowadays when I, look <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, and I know, I mean, look, I'm in my office right now. I have plenty of books and crosses back there and stuff like that, but like Jesus keeps me in it, <laughs> you know? And, and I mean, Jesus uh, subverts the whole thing, right? Yeah. And authority is not like power over, yes. but um, like you want to follow because Jesus has moved toward you in the midst of your pain and your yes. suffering. And, um, you you want to follow and you want Jesus to lead. And I, I do think that, you know, the whole script has been flipped. And um, and and the thing about it is, is that version of authority, that version of power works. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, was, I was talking to someone earlier today and we were talking about church planning and I've been in and around church planning for almost 25 years now. And I've seen this all over the place in the church planning world. And that's, that doesn't mean that every church planner is narcissistic and it's necessarily narcissistic, all that stuff, right? But it is to say that it works, um, that kind of power influence, that way of, um, you know, like all of this sort of more kind of North American, Western understanding of success, achievement, and how that's been conflated with uh, Christianity. Um, it kind of works, you know? Um, and it, it, even more scary is like you, you can begin to sort of trace that back to larger conversation, conversations about racism, white supremacy, mm-hmm. colonialism. Mm. I mean, it, it's worked. Uh, and I, I, I think that that's what really scares me is like, how do we detach ourselves from that version of authority that you're talking about? Yeah. Because it's what we know. It's, it's the waters we swim in. Mm. Okay. So some of our listeners are going to be, maybe they've done their own trauma work. They right. are familiar with counseling terms and um, maybe they're even familiar. Maybe they were raised by a narcissist. Maybe they've been in relationship with a narcissistic husband or wife. Um, but let's, let's give some language and put some parameters around yeah. what is narcissism. You define it really yeah. upfront in your book. And, yeah. um, and then I want you, let's define it and then take us into, um, 
what narc, you know, really means and, mm. and the myth, the Greek myth. And let's like uncover the beginnings of this whole paradigm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so the way we typically understand narcissism is, is from like clinical definitions of it. You know, um, there's this DSM five, which is like the Bible of psychologists. And, um, some of the key characteristics are like grandiosity, uh, you know, that, that person that needs to be on stage needs to be the authority as we were just talking about a sense of entitlement, um, a lack of empathy, even, even though narcissists show up in a way sometimes where it feels like, Oh, they get what's going on with me. Uh, it's a kind of phony vulnerability. I call it faux vulner- vulnerability, F-A-U-X, faux mm-hmm. vulnerability, right? Um, and then oftentimes the clinical definition gets at uh, what I call the debris field of pain that they cause mm. in their relationships and in their workplace. All of those things, when you check all those boxes, like I do as a clinician, uh, may amount to narcissistic personality disorder. Uh, the story you're referring to is mm. the story of narcissists who uh, is a Greek myth. Uh, Narcissus was um, this good-looking guy that ran around in the forest. Uh, um, the young women loved him and pursued him, but he uh, was not able to love himself. He was invulnerable. He's not capable of vulnerability. But one day he comes upon um, a body of water, a stream, a pond, um, and he sees his image in it. And he's like, Oh, I love you. Mm. <laughs> I see you. Um, uh, that's nice. And reaches in, and of course, you know the rest of the story. Disrupts the water, and then and then it's this. It's uh, the narc numb that you were just referring to as a kind of paralysis. Like mm-hmm. n- now he's like addicted to his own image, so he's constantly trying to get that image back. Mm-hmm. And he's stuck. He's immobilized. Eventually, as the myth goes, uh, he's so fixated, so immobilized that he doesn't eat, he doesn't drink, and he dies. Yeah. Um, it's a pretty tragic story, it's actually, so tragic. right? It's um, so- but it's a story of addiction, really addiction mm. to one's own idealized image, right? This is who I want to be and an incapacity to live with one's own brokenness or fragility. Yeah. And I love how in the beginning of the book, you say it's longing. Narcissism is a longing to be freed from longing. Yes. And it's this yes. flight from humanity. Yes, that's right. Whoa. Yeah. I mean, our hearts are made to long, you know, our hearts are restless, right? We're, we're made to long and love and desire. And um, the narcissist is cut off from that mm. because that's too vulnerable. Yeah. Like to be in relationship is to be vulnerable, right? To, 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 your heart may be broken. Yes. And, and so the narcissist cuts himself off from the possibility of vulnerability mm. and thinks actually that that makes him safer. Mm. Um, and so hides you know, behind a castle, high castle walls of invulnerability. Um, and, 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 and so, you know, part of, part of my exploration of this is in the book is also to say that behind the wall is like a terrified little boy. Now yeah. I sometimes get, I, I get pushback because, you know, survivors and I'm, I'm a survivor too, but survivors, and I get this, will say like, I don't want anything that humanizes the narcissist, right? Like right. he's just evil, evil, evil. And that's it, you know, but the reality is, is behind the, the castle wall is a terrified little boy who's afraid to come out and be known, be seen, to long, to love. Yeah. Do you find, so, so not, not only are you a pastor, you're a therapist, you're a counselor, right? A therapist. Yeah, right, right, right. And so do you find that when you, when you're working with someone who you would diagnose with, with narcissistic um, disorder, um, yeah. have, I, I, I keep having the word 
orphan spirit come into my head while we're talking about this. You know, that little boy or that little girl that's mm-hmm. hiding behind the wall. Would you yeah. say that there tends to be, you know, someone who's been left kind of, you know, that parental figure has left them. And part of that, um, I don't know, part of that grasp to, to get back into, I guess the real world is to create this, uh, you know, I'm the greatest thing ever. Mm. Yeah. I think that's it. I mean, I, I think that, uh, at his core, he's looking for love, you know, Mm. and, um, but it's not real. So I, it sounds like I'm contradicting myself, but it's, it's like love in his own terms, you know, not, not a love that will make him vulnerable, not a love that, um, will require surrender in any sense, but, um, like I'm, this is why they love the stage, right? Because, Mm. because, uh, when they're done, they'll applaud. Mm. And when they applaud, I, I feel like I'm okay. I feel like I'm finally worth it because, you know, the inner narrative is um, you're not worth it. You're not lovable. Um, no one will ever want you. Mm. Now, no no person with narcissistic personality disorder has ever said that to me outright. You know, we may get there <laughs> after a lot of therapy, Um but that's actually what they're doing every time they get up on stage. And that's why I, I often t- talk about, I don't think I talk about it much in the book, but the dynamics of ego inflation and ego deflation. And there's this constant roller coaster of like, I got to get back up to the top, yeah. you know? And, and then once, once, you know, the, the worship service is over and the lights go out, they, they start going back down again. And so they've got to get themselves back into a place where, you know, they can, see the applause again or the, you know, get, get the kudos or whatever it might be that they need in particular. Mm. You know, as I think about this in terms of church and in terms of ministry, I can, I get the intoxication. Like I mm-hmm. get that on a very personal level as a singer, as a worship leader. And I, yeah. I remember in doing some, some work just around spiritual formation and just even remembering the story of, of Lucifer, you know, being this worshiping kind of angel of light, of wanting the glory because it soothed. And it, I mean, maybe Lucifer is like the original narcissist, you know? Um, And so I I get this and, and it also just makes me deeply sad because I've, I've been in close proximity my entire life with people who have um, narcissistic traits and, what I, I'm curious about from your perspective is I heard one person say, well, narcissism just breeds narcissism. You know, if you're, if you're raised by a narcissist or you fall into a boyfriend-girlfriend yeah. relationship yeah. with a narcissist and yeah. that sense of shame, then you're responsible for it. You know, you're so ashamed. You're never mm-hmm. good enough. You're not mm-hmm. doing enough for the other person. And then you bear their pain and you bear that shame. So what is that like? I mean, for on a professional level, when you when you're watching this interplay, does the narcissism then breed narcissism? Yeah, so it does in a strange way. You know, um, there there's this really fascinating um, guy named Gerald Post, J-E-R-R-O-L-D. If people want to look him up, he's like a CIA profiler. Um, he's I think he's in his late 80s right now. He just, I think he just wrote a book on Trump actually, but um, (laughs) he's, uh, he's, he's written some brilliant stuff on narcissism. And he says, you know, there, there is the narcissist who he calls um, 
uh, the mirror hungry leader, like the mirror hungry, meaning like the, the audience is the mirror. Mm. And when I look out and I see the smiling faces and the applause, like, I just feel like I'm, I'm, I'm okay. Mm. But then there's the ideal hungry follower, he says, Mm. and the ideal hungry follower, he says, also bears characteristics of narcissism because they're looking for the, the ideal image in the pool of water. You know, they're not able to live in the reality of the brokenness of life Mm. they're looking for. So I, you know, if I follow this leader, Mm -hmm. um, whoever he he is or she is, you know, that talks about if, you know, if we live in this way, it'll always go well for, you know, kind of a prosperity gospel or whatever it might look like. If I follow him, it'll go well for me. And they attach themselves actually sort of like leech themselves Mm. to the narcissist. And that's a strange form of narcissism in and of itself that isn't as grandiose but is nevertheless addicted to an image that isn't real. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. And all of it is fueled by shame. All of it is fueled by, there must be something wrong with me. I'm yeah. not enough. It's not enough. Um, mm-hmm. Ultimately, God isn't enough. Right. Yeah. So in your book, you you talk about what really, I mean, like the anecdote to this is, um, or the balm is, is, knowing how to bring your essence authentically to mm. to the world which requires so much courage to even uncover like who am i who am i really yeah. and 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 i um on the podcast we've had sister macrina Whitaker, who i don't know if you're familiar with her work but she's a benedictine nun and she's no longer with us anymore but um yeah. i got the privilege of doing a couple of silent retreats with her and she changed my whole perspective because you talk about this in the book of that our original goodness that we begin Mm -hmm. at beloved and she just looked at me and she said you begin at beloved and I thought oh my gosh I thought I began as this worm like this pile of you know dirt and knowing that can then change the trajectory of how we interact with our own shame yeah. Yeah. That, that's so good. I, when you were talking about the silent retreat, it reminds me like when I was a pastor back in San Francisco, I used to do silent retreats in a lot of like Bay area startup founders, you know, like mm-hmm. company founders and stuff like that would come and, um, they would hate me for the first 24 hours. You know, I mean, I could just tell as, as we, I walked by them, it was like, why did you make me do this? Yeah. And then something would begin to drop. Like, you know, I, I, I'm not getting my sense of identity through my phone or my, my work or my whatever. Something would drop and, 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 and that inevitably or hopefully they would begin to discover exactly what you're talking about. Mm. Like there is a fullness far greater um, than, than um, the, the mirroring that I get from my Instagram account or whatever it might be, you know? And, and I think um, that's it, you know, like I, Ultimately, we're all longing to be known, seen, held, to be the beloved, right? I, yeah. I think that that's a lot harder sometimes for men to say than for women. Um, and I don't want to make it that black and white, but I, I do think, you know, mm. but I long to be held, to yeah. be seen, to be known, to be loved, to be, and, but it's really, really easy to, you know, to get that from a tweet nowadays that yeah. goes viral or from a, the applause or, or even my class, and, you know, now, now I'm a seminary prof and they come to me and man, your classes have influenced me the most. Yeah. It's like, yeah, man, I'm so good. Aren't <laughs> yeah, I? <that's> right. <laughs> um, so 
So they're, they're, I think what you're getting at is, is so important and um, we need to create spaces for that silence in our lives, right? Yeah. But it's also really risky because what, what if in the silence, all I hear are those voices that tell me you're not enough. Right. Um, well, shit. Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. I, I mean, I'm sitting. I just had breakfast this morning. We we live in a college town, and there's a big university here, and so I had the chance to sit with a coach and a player of one of our sports here, and um, she's struggling in her faith, and um, and so I said, "Were you? You know, you raised in the church? Said, yeah." And uh, she's like, "I'm a believer, but you know, I was just told from from the very beginning, I'm a sinner." Yeah. And I'm like, you know that that theology. I'm a sinner. I'm just. I'm just. I was born in sin. Yeah. Like that theology it just came about like in the 13 or 1400s. Like that. That's not an original theology. Like like yeah. when we look at Genesis. Genesis says, and it was good, and it was yeah. really good, and yeah. it was really yeah. good. And so why if 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 God made man and woman in His image, and He said it's good multiple times, all His creation is good. Why are we telling people you're not good and you have to work your way to good? And the only way you, you can do that is through Jesus. And then you still have to not sin in order to stay in his good graces. Yeah. Damn it. That's hard. And we're never going to get there. But God says, hey, bro, you're good. Yeah. You're good. Yeah. yeah. So it's almost like if we could start there, then then we're not dealing with that. I don't know. It, shame. That shame, it's that shame. shame is not there. Yeah. That's and right. It, I mean, it, so I I teach at a Reformed seminary. This is a deep part of um, the Reformed tradition, right? Um, yeah. And, and I like to say it works. I mean, keep people in guilt and shame. Um, you've got some really obedient followers. I mean, it works. That The theology works. Um, you know, you start to tell people they're the beloved and watch <laughs> out, you know, and, and I teach uh, one of my, I always say my favorite 16th century reformer is St. Teresa of Avila. Oh, yeah. Um, she's, uh, you know, and so I teach a class on the interior castle. And, mm. um, and, and you know, of course, in a Reformed seminary, 16th century reformers are John Calvin and Martin mm. Luther. So to say St. Teresa's, but I, I, one of the things I say is she was free because she knew she was the beloved, mm. you know? And so uh, in one of the most patriarchal societies of all like civilization, mm. she lived from a place of interior freedom. Mm. And, you know, you're not going to keep people down. That, that's not a way to cultivate like obedient followers, you know, <laughs> um, uh, with a theology of the beloved. And, um, and so we're talking about something that has the potential to be extraordinarily revolutionary for the church. Mm. And yet we continue to follow narcissistic leaders. Yeah. Uh, we're seeing it in politics. You know, we see it in the yeah. church. I think that there's something inside of uh, us that you know, it's like the inner narrative says, yeah, there I must not be enough. There must be something wrong with me. And so if I attach myself to this big, strong male leader that, by the way, looks a lot like my God and is just as angry as my God, mm. um, I'll be okay, mm. you know? Um, and that's just so toxic. So is there, when you talk about this in the book, you, you talk about how a true sense of, of loving ourselves yeah. is necessary yes. in order to combat shame and narcissistic traits. Mm -hmm. yeah. That, okay, so here's the, like, to me, the extremes that I see is like, when you go one way with self-love, it becomes narcissistic. 
Yeah, yeah. And then you go the other way with like self-loathing. That yeah. also breeds narcissism. So what is authentic self-love? What does that like practically look like in someone? When you're talking about like a continuum of what is, is there healthy narcissism and what does that look like? Yeah, right, right. So, I mean, that, and that's one of the common misunderstandings, even of the narcissism myth, you know, and people talk about, well, that was all about self-love. And I'll often say, um, someone who loves himself in a truly healthy way is incapable of narcissism. Mm. Um, self-love begins when we're born, when mom holds us and looks us in the eye and says, you are the most special human being in the world, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it allows us to kind of uh, interiorize a sense of, I am the beloved. Mm-hmm. I am special. You know, this, that's why my daughter, when she was five, would do cartwheels and say, daddy, daddy, look at me. Uh, you know, aren't, I'm the best cartwheeler ever, you know, whatever she said mm-hmm. back in the day, you know, and I'd be <laughs> like, yeah, you are, you're the best. Mm-hmm. Um, because of that, it's more likely than not that she's, you know, like when she's 50, she's not going to be saying, look at me, look at me, look at me. I'm the best because she knows she's loved. She doesn't have to go looking for it. You know, um, I do think that shame though, on the other hand, breeds, breeds narcissism, breeds this sense of love me, love me, love. Now I'm 40, 45 years old. Like the guy I was seeing for counseling who, he was a, like, he was sort of overweight, um, uh, former football player, pastoring a church that was much smaller than the ideal church that he ever imagined he'd be pastoring. <laughs> and he looked at me with tears in his eyes and he's like, I just want to be the captain of the football team again. Mm. You know? And I, uh, to me, that was just so tragic, you know, yeah. here's yeah. a man just fueled by shame. Um, and now he looks in the mirror and he's like, I don't like the man I see, you know, um, self-love would, would be, you know what? Um, what a beautiful privilege I have pastoring these 60 people mm. um, and loving my my wife and my kid, whatever it is, but that's not where he was living. You know, mm. chronic depression, chronic emptiness, mm. no self-love, just shame. Wow. That makes me think of, so we just watched The Two Popes on Netflix. Oh, yeah. Which, probably one of the best movies we watched in, the yeah, pand- so in, the, in this pandemic era. And um, I, that immediately made me think Pope Francis when he was, during the first round of voting when Pope Benedict actually became the Pope, um, he just wanted to go back and be a, a community priest and not, you know, lay down the cardinal ship or whatever you call it and all the accolade that came with that, go back to Argentina and just be in and amongst the people. I mean, even today as Pope, he doesn't even live in the papal residency. He lives yeah. in a tiny little apartment. And I don't know if this is true. I've heard from some sources that he actually leaves you know, he'll dress up in just normal priest clothes and sneak <laughs> out of the, all the things to go pray over yeah. the homeless. And I'm mm. like, wow, like that's a dude who is in, he's, he's in, he's connected to beloved. Yeah. yeah, that's right. And he's like at the top of the game, right? He's, he's done getting <laughs> higher than that. <laughs> Man, he's, yeah, he's climbed the ladder. Like, that's <laughs> the ladder, right? So, and that's, I mean, it's, it's, that's where, I, you sound hopeful when you say that. Like I, I'm thinking to myself, that's what keeps me in the game too. That's, I mean, I, I need stories like that yeah. sometimes to remind me that there, there, there's hope, you know, um, because there are so many stories of the other, there's so many stories of I, I climbed the ladder. Um, and, uh, it, just in this last year, I've heard of three or four suicides of <sighs> male 
pastors or former pastors that had climbed the ladder supposedly and gotten to the top and just discovered a new emptiness at the top, you know, mm-hmm. and, um, and then had the affair, did this or did that. And there's so much of that going on, right? So that we long for these, these um, women and men who can sort of lead us into a new way, you know, mm-hmm. of love. Mm-hmm. When we think about the church making a, sp- a safe kind of space for us to get uncomfortable in. So safety not meaning we're not disrupted. Like we need those disruptions mm-hmm. of ego. And mm-hmm. so we, we, need, we need to have a place where we can comfortably be uncomfortable, where, where we're yeah. safely confronting these things. But it just doesn't seem that overall the system that we have in place now is going to hold like, and we see all the defects, the ex evangelicals, you know, the, the people kind of poking and starting to throw stones, you know, at the, at the glass castle. Um, What is it going to look like for the church to experience a new way, a new revolution, a new revival of our whole selves being able to come and grapple with our humanity and our belovedness or our yeah. beloved humanity. <laughs> yeah. I, that's a really complicated question. Um, Sorry. I like to ask those. She's a one. <laughs> it's terrible. Just, let's just put, she's There's a no one. simple it's question here. Yeah. Well, I'm a four, so I'm just going to okay. talk as tragically as possible. Okay. Yeah. Go for um, it. And, and uh, I think we're, we're in a season of massive reckoning right yeah. now. Um, you know, there's a theologian, Bible scholar named Walter Brueggemann, and mm-hmm. he talks about seasons of orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. And I yes. think we're in a, a massive season of disorientation. Um, now, now some are really afraid of that, and they're trying to preserve, you know, what, what all, you know, make the church great again. You know, we can do it. We can. Yeah. I hear this romanticized language, like the church is the bride of Christ. We have to defend her. Mm. And sometimes I think that's a kind of idealized and even narcissistic vision of the church or what you think the church should look like Mm. when it's at its best, which usually means powerful, Mm -hmm. um, successful, put together. But there's this massive season of, of reckoning of disorientation. I mean, um, there was a book that um, that a, a woman wrote uh, probably about ten years ago now called The Great Emergence, uh, Phyllis Tickle, and and yes. and she talked about like these every five hundred years there are these moments of of reformation, but it comes with a necessary dying reckoning, whatever you want to call it, deconstruction. Um, that's scary because you know for those of us who make our living doing this work, you know I teach future pastors now. I'm mm-hmm. I'm in a seminary. Um, I don't want to lose my, my, uh, you know, I don't want to lose my paycheck, but if I'm honest, um, and I, if I can put my paycheck at risk for a moment, um, I think even what I do requires a massive disruption and disorientation. Like I, I will often say, let's just scratch and start all over again. Let's just, you know, dump it and rethink this whole thing from the ground up. Um, so that's a long answer to a question that I think is really complicated and, probably will require us to take seriously the disorientation first mm. before we we begin to talk positively about what what's going to emerge on the other side. I mean, God is really good at death and resurrection stories, so I'll kind of leave that in God's hands. Right. But, but I do I do want to to sort of name it, take it seriously. And 
you know, and the reality of that, you guys know this, is that uh, for a lot of us, we're becoming more and more uncomfortable with what the church is today um, mm-hmm. and, and how it shows up in the world. Mm-hmm. We don't think it's a faithful witness to Jesus, but mm-hmm. on the other hand, we, we think it's, it, it holds all kinds of contradictions. And mm-hmm. so what do we do with that now too, mm-hmm. right? I don't want to just toss it out, but I want to be honest about the contradictions. Yeah. I was in my twenties, I was the greatest Calvinist there was. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty. That's I pretty- could. I could, you're, you're I could, I could whoop your ass with some serious yeah. Calvinism <laughs> and feel so good about it. And, and now I'm definitely not in that, in that space anymore. And I think, I wonder why people are so afraid of that word deconstruction. Yeah. It's like people I talk to, you know, we live here in Texas, it's the South, you know, we have Baylor and a seminary and a lot of wonderful people, but there's also folks who are like, it's like if you mention deconstruction, that means you're losing your faith. Yes, that's right. And I hear it, and I'm like, maybe it's not that you're losing your faith. It's just you're 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 still working your faith out. Like I, yeah. I believe I read that it says work your faith out. Yeah. You know, in scripture it says work. That that's like a present tense word. So if you've gotten to the past tense on that, you might you might need to check yourself. I would think. Yeah. Yeah. Because you know, I'm 44, but by the time I, if I make it to 80. I hope my faith looks a little bit differently. The who of the faith is the same, yeah. But the expression of it, I yeah. hope to God is is different. Yeah. And He's not afraid of that, yeah, mm. yeah. And if He I is, then He's not that big. Yeah, I love that. I often say, like, I learned a lot about the attributes of God in seminary, but I never once heard God is secure. <laughs> God is just, <laughs> oh, it's good. okay. You know, it's okay. It's going to be okay. So it's all going to come crashing down. Okay. Well, I, I, like those are the stories that I write, you know, and, mm. um, and you're right. I mean, I think this, if, if we are honest about our own stories, um, there's, there's, we have to account for all the pain, brokenness, failure, disruption in our own personal stories. Um, I think that that's, that's the story that is unfolding, sadly, maybe tragically, um, for the church in North America right now. Um, and, and so I, I don't know, I don't know what to do with that, you guys, because I, like when things are going well, we can, we can implement our programs and strategies, but when things aren't, aren't going very well, I think we need to show up as, um, as doctors of the soul in a sense, like we have to show up with empathy, uh, for the sake of those who've been traumatized and hurt. Mm. And so what I'm trying to do right now is just be present to the hurt. Mm. You know, even, even this book, I think I said is like, just, my way of saying to people, you're not crazy. This is real. This happened. Yeah. Yeah. You touched on something about, um, being present and, and just being present in the pain. Like what a gift. Narcissistic leaders don't know how to do that. They do not how to, they do not know. And you, you say in your book, narcissistic pastors are anxious and insecure shepherds who do not lead sheep to still waters but into hurricane winds. Mm. Yeah. And so there is a sense of anxiety and that anxiety almost becomes addictive to, to those following them Yes, because you, you, you perceive that little rumble in your tummy that you always get. You perceive that as the Holy spirit. Yeah. That's really, that's called trauma. (laughs) 
<laughs> like, <laughs> you know, like if you're not grounded, if, if you don't, if you can't walk into your church and, and sit with your pastor without having your body kind of float away or, or be amped up, um, that isn't the Holy Spirit. That's your body trying to yeah. tell you something. So what a narcissistic past, why do we keep protecting them? What do they look like? What's happening in, in these pastors? <laughs> I can tell you lives? what they look like. Okay. I know. <laughs> yeah. Tell us. Oh no, Chuck, you go for it. You've been counseling them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I think what you're getting at in part is that we continue to, to plug in to them. You know, I, I, I think that there is this sense that if we find ourselves in a place of insecurity, mm. fragility, um, if we're scared, if we're anxious, if we don't feel like, like, like in times like this, where it feels like the world is coming apart at the seams, we, we want to plug into a power source that is true and secure and reliable. And too often that power source is, is a grandiose narcissistic leader. Um, and these are Christians, right? Yeah. I, I'm talking about, right? And yeah. we, we're seeing it happen. I mean, I don't, I don't know what your politics are, but I, I mean, I think we're seeing it happen on a, on a national level as Absolutely. well. I'm, I'm scared. I'm, I feel like the world, you know, Christians are losing power in the world. White, white, white men like me at 50 <laughs> years, I'm losing power in the world. Mm. I'm going to plug into someone who will make it good again, make it great again. Mm. So it, it, I mean, I, I think where I have empathy is people are terrified. Yeah. You know, and um, God, God isn't um, in a sense big enough uh, to hold it. I've mm. got to find someone, you know, and it, I, I've got to find the golden calf. Yeah. Um, you know, because I'm, I'm just scared, and I need something that I can touch. Mm. You know, Israel of old needed a king. You know, yep. a Saul. Um, they needed someone who that they, they could sort of see, and they could say, "Oh, okay, now I feel secure." This is the story retold time and time and time again. And I think, you know, this is why I, I love the mystics, you know, mm -hmm. right? Contemporary of St. Teresa of Avila was St. John of the Cross. Mm -hmm. The dark night of the soul is when the lights go out, and this is God's doing, to say, I'm going to require you to fumble it around in the dark. You know, and I, it isn't that I haven't gone away. It's just that I want you to trust me in a new way. And I, th I think the lights are going out, you know, mm -hmm. and people are trying to, I got, I need security. I need that powerful leader. I know he's a narcissist. I know he's terrible. I know he's arrogant, but I, I need him to, to make my world great again and give me the peace that I'm longing for. Mm. So some of the, so much of this has to do with human vulnerability, yeah. uh, really basic needs of the human heart that are being met in ways that are tragic yeah. and consequential. <laughs> yeah. And I think one of the best things for people um, <clears throat> who have close proximity who love a narcissist in their life, mm. who love their pastor, who love their, um, the person that's quote, discipling them, um, who love their mom or dad or their sibling or their boss. Um, narcissists are good at creating that tangled web of codependency. And I think what you're alluding to what I hear is, when we're constantly plugging into that, we're reinforcing the message. Yes. So, so I want to empower everyone who's listening to this and who is, who is kind of having these little light bulbs kind of go, oh, gosh, I think I'm participating in this dysfunction. You can take your plug out. 
And you can go get care and you can do that through a myriad of ways. And it doesn't even have to cost money. It really, it really doesn't like there are free community support groups. If your narcissist is an addict, is an, an alcoholic, find an Al-Anon group, you yeah, know, right, um, right. get plugged into recovery support, celebrate recovery or, right. or, um, there's free mental health resources out there. There's yoga classes where you can gain power, like getting grounded in your body. Now you're yeah. just getting crazy. Well, I am. <laughs> this is very new agey now. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You need to check yourself. As I'm still in my yoga sweats and pants, um, it is where it is where I go. I mean, there is there is so much power in our own um and, and learning our own bodies and, and yeah. you know, having strength and groundedness. Hey, Chuck, I have a question. Yeah. Um, uh, we, we love the Enneagram. It's been powerful for yes. us. Um, yeah. I'm going to just assume that you know it since you know that you're a four. He wrote, he writes about um, it. He wrote about, I read, yes. I read that. Did you read that? I haven't That's read it That's what I thought. I'm going to read it, but I haven't read it yet. <laughs> I've read the read twice. I read the, I, and audio as well. I heard the audio <laughs> version. You read it very well, Chuck. Um, <laughs> Is there a more narcissistic number on the Enneagram or are they all equal? That's a great question. (laughs) I don't know. Like, I don't know. I, part of, part of why I wrote about it in the book was that I, I see narcissism show up in these nine different faces, you know? And so whatever, like, I'll ask you guys. So what, what would you guys think? What's like the caricature of the narcissist? If you thought about Enneagram types, like maybe what two types would you say are most narcissistic? Us. (laughs) Oh yeah, good. We're well, and I'm going to say that because you, you actually, it, I was very confronted um, in my own narcissistic kind of traits of um, that control. Control yeah. is key to narcissism, yeah. and yeah. so I, as a one, you know, just will totally out myself. Like I grasp for the fix, for the control, for. Yeah. You know, and and, it's so gross. And then Brett's an eight. My gosh. As an eight, I do not identify with narcissism. (laughs) I'm sorry that you do. Eights aren't controlling at all. No, not at all. (laughs) No, I mean, each, but this is the thing is each one reveals a a different strategy of control, right? Mm, And and, uh, interestingly, one of the early Enneagram fathers, uh, Claudio Naranjo, said the seven is the archetype of of the, the narcissist. Um, but I actually think each one has its own way of showing up narcissistically. Um, and I go through each one of the numbers, you know, just to kind of say, because there's a grandiose version of narcissism, by the way, but there's also this more subtle, sometimes called vulnerable, other times called covert narcissism, which doesn't look as grandiose, you know? Um, but can look a little bit more like a four. Like I, I don't necessarily need to be on stage, but I want you to think that I'm special mm-hmm. or I want to be involved in something that's really deep and, um, you know, a, a special in a unique way, you know, all the, mm-hmm. yeah. the key words of the four, right? So it doesn't have to be, I don't have to be on stage as long as um, I'm doing whatever I can in the moment for you to, to, to look at me and at the end of this podcast say, wow, he's got a unique take on life. You know, he's got something special to offer. And then lo and behold, I've, I've, you know, I've got my fix for the day. So it's so subtle. My wife's a nine, by the way. And so she's like, you didn't write about nines, did you? And I'm like, yes, I did. Um, thankfully she's, she's pretty healthy, but I mean, the <laughs> passive aggressiveness of the nine, mm. right. Um, uh, storing up, I love the phrase of, uh, who is it? Suzanne's to be, I think, storing up arrows in the quiver. Oh, just yeah. waiting, you know. Um, 
I love that. And, and so each one of the numbers can demonstrate a unique face of narcissism. Mm. Yeah. Do you think that's yeah. born out of the message not heard? For Wait, who? Say again? For, the nine? I, for No, for all the numbers. Do you, do you oh. think that narcissistic bit is found in the message missed as children? Oh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 I think so. I mean, I, um, I mean, it's a, it's a crazy sort of mix of nature and nurture, right? Yeah. Because I mean, I, I've got two daughters who are like ni- 19 and almost 18 now, and they just came out differently. Right. Um, and so there's this kind of, um, you know, this, this basic sort of hardware, I guess, is that the right way of, I, I don't, I haven't used this metaphor before you tell me if it's a bad <laughs> metaphor, but, but then, you know, you, you get, you plug in all this other stuff, you know, of life and, um, and, and, uh, yeah, I do think that there's, there's something fundamentally missing and I'm going to go about getting it. If I'm a two by being, um, so there for you, so helpful, uh, so ingratiating that I am, I'm going to, um, I'm going to be filled up by that or so I think, but actually I'm going to become really, really resentful. Mm. And so, you know, ultimately my two moves to my eight and I'm just a really angry person all the time because I'm trying, I'm trying, trying. No one knows how helpful I am. Mm. You know, well, twos can't be narcissistic. They're, they're so good. (laughs) You know, they're so, they're always there. Actually they are. They're controlling in their own way. Yeah. Yeah. We all are just, we all are really just grasping for, I guess control is just a, an illusion of power and right. power is just a grasp for yeah. that sense of fill, to be filled, to be loved, yeah. to be held. Like you yeah. said, you know, it, yeah. it, instead of being held, we hold on to and try in all those different ways. What does, what does healing look like for someone? I mean, is someone who is maybe pathologically narcissistic and by that meaning like lots of, well, let's define what does pathological narcissism look like and is there healing for it? Yeah. So, um, you know, the pathological narcissist, narcissistic personality disorder is really just about completely cut off from their true self, if you want to put it that way, from any sense of vulnerability. Someone on the narcissistic spectrum that might have narcissistic traits um, may not be completely cut off. It might just be like a mask that that they wear at times Mm. where they're sort of overconfident or whatever. But the the person who's diagnosably narcissistic personality disorder is pretty well cut off. Mm. And um, the recovery process uh, we're talking about is like years, not mm-hmm. days, not mm-hmm. weeks. You know, and so th- this is a person who needs to step away from the limelight, step away from the stage and do deep, deep work if they're even willing to do that work. And, and that work is, is really putting them back in touch with um, – their deepest self. Right. And that, that means actually kind of getting rooting down to what happened to cut me off. You know, um, oftentimes there, there's an event or a a series of events that were highly traumatic and, uh, they didn't decide one day, like, I'm just going to be, I'm just going to put on this mask. I mean, it it just becomes sort of, um, the thing that they do um, mm. to protect themselves from being hurt again, from being abused again, from being vulnerable again, like any abuse victim will tell you, I went out of, out of body, mm-hmm. you know? And so reconnecting them, as you were saying with yoga, reconnecting people to their bodies, um, to their emotions, to their experiences, to their story, 
that that takes a long while mm-hmm. for someone who uh, has narcissistic personality disorder. And then there are some people who will say it's incurable. It, it can be mitigated, but it's really um, incurable. And um, you know, I'm I, I'm I'm sort of of two minds on that because I've I've seen people make some progress, but I but I also think yeah, it's it's sort of like it's something that's always with you. Mm. Um, I can say more about that. Maybe that, maybe that's confusing, but, um, does that help? Yeah, it helps a lot. Some of the patterns I think that you define in the book of, of narcissistic personality disorder is kind of a trail of, um, unhealthy relationships or just very few people around them. And, And it makes me wonder just of the context of community and yep. and healing that community offers why we're from community and for community made from this trinity god for yep. the body yep. and um and you know i wonder even with the myth of narcissus it's like he was alone he was just out there you know yeah. alone like you don't hear about anybody else in the story except the ones like following him adoring him mm-hmm. um what is community for us, what does that do to yeah. us and for us to heal this narcissi- yeah. problem of narcissism? So that's so important. And and what's what's so hard is that most pastors I've worked with, for instance, who are narcissistic will say, I've got tons of community. Mm-hmm. I've got tons of people around me. I've got this great staff. I've got this great spouse. But ultimately, if they get really honest, they're all alone. Mm. Um, I, I knew one pastor who was kind of a Enneagram seven off the charts and would spend and spend and spend and have these gatherings and all the liquor, all the, whatever you wanted mm. so that he could have friends so, wow. so that he got people around him, you know, um, it was just so tragically alone. Yeah. Uh, I think, I think that, um, when I wrote the book, I had some pastors reach out, um, over like Twitter and stuff like that and say, do you think I'm a narcissist? Like I'm reading this and some of the things are, are connecting with me. And, and I, I'd often say like, if you're curious, if you're humble enough to be curious, humble enough to reach out and be vulnerable in that way, you might have some traits, but chances are you're not NPD, you know? And, um, I think, I think that the antidote is community. The antidote is relationship. The antidote is vulnerability. It's it's being knowing and being known. It's it's that trinitarian life that you're talking about. Mm. It's back to the garden, you know. Yeah. It's um and it and that's that's really scary. That's terrifying for someone who's narcissistic. Mm. But it's the only thing I know. Like one of the questions that I I've I have sort of used in my own life for the last 15 years when I was a pastor, now as a professor is how do you experience me? Mm-hmm. And anyone at any time, people who I, you know, were, I was managing or lead, whatever it was, anyone at any time can come and say, hey, I want to tell you, um, this is how you're hurting me or whatever. And, you know, even just a few months ago, right before COVID, a student came to my office and said, can I really answer that question with you? And I'm like, yeah, you can answer it. I'm always a little terrified myself. But yeah. he said, um, he said, you know, you talk so much about presence and wholeheartedness and stuff, but um you seem really anxious lately. And whenever I try to get your attention, you're like walking 30 miles an hour through like the atrium in the seminary and um, back and forth to your office. And, and I always feel like you've got so much going on and you're so important that I can't interrupt you. Ooh, what a gift. What and a, a stinger. Whoa. I know. 
like yeah. a faithful, yeah. very faithful wound there. Ooh, I feel right? that. Yeah. Goodness. And I would, I mean, I'd be lying if I, I didn't say there was a part of me that was like, I'm a prof and you're a student, get out. You yeah. know, I, right. right. Back but, to the power, back to the over under, yeah. back to the authority. <laughs> authority. Yeah. yeah. So then my question is, um, or my response is say more, tell me more, tell me about how you experienced that. What's it like for you to come up to my office I'm on the second floor to walk up the stairs and have the courage to walk in and say, that. and, and, and then just to listen, to be present, right? It's excruciating to live in vulnerability. I know why people choose the pool of water, you know, I know why I do time and again. And so, but, but we choose it every day. We choose vulnerability again. You know, uh, it's sort of like my wife and I have been married 26 years now and we're about to be empty nesters next year. Yeah. And the other day I said to her, I'm terrified of next year. Yeah. Like I go into the bedroom and I watch my show and you sit with one of the girls and you watch your show and, and like, I love you and you love me, but I'm scared of next year. Cause like we have to move toward one another again. Mm. And, um, and but what else is there, you yeah. know, except to live in excruciating vulnerability? Man, I just have tears welling up in my eye because we're, this is our oldest, this is her senior year. And mm. I just had a conversation actually with my counselor just to say, could you do a family session with us? Because I'm noticing we're all kind of starting to get really kind of angry. And some of the siblings are like pulling away and then other ones are trying to control and... Yeah. You know, and I'm, you know, and then as parents, I'm like, oh, I got to be there. Like, cause you know, yeah. the door's yeah. closing. So I'm just jumping yeah. on. And then, you know, Brett's getting like, no, I got it under control. they got to come here. They can't, she can't be going to, all the friends need to come here so we can have that connection. And, um, <laughs> I love it. Yeah. And so, you know, we're all just, it brings an awareness to me, I think, in having this conversation that when we, when we are pursuing a sort of, or when we're pursuing vulnerability and choosing it every single day to be vulnerable with whatever it is we're going through in our life, whether that's someone leaving for college or empty nesters or, um, the shame we experience in our relationships or in bringing our essence and our giftedness to the world, there can be a real shame about doing that too. It requires so much courage. Yes, Like vulnerability just takes an amount of courage that it it can only, it can only be um, really brought forth in the context of, of good, healthy friendships and good, healthy community that encourage that, um, expression of vulnerability. What are, what are some ways that you think as a pastoral counselor, as a spiritual director, um, as a therapist, what are ways we can create that community for people so that narcissism can, can be put to death? Yeah. Um, I, I think, because so much of the dynamic of narcissism is power, right? Um, and abuse of that power. Um, I, I often think, and there's a lot we could talk about, you know, we could do like a whole other episode in this question, you know, well, because, we just might have to, um, yeah, right. <laughs> but I, I do think, um, if I, if, I, if I could just start the, like the beginning of an answer is for those of us who do have some privilege and do have some power doing the work necessary 
to move toward vulnerability and create spaces of vulnerability mm. um, to, to, to live to live in that way, you know, to, to use our power to facilitate it. I have power in this space that I'm in as a professor. And so if I can say to my students, um, you have every freedom to come to me and say, this is how I'm experiencing you. And that doesn't mean you're going to get an F on your paper or whatever mm. it is, right? I'm, I'm breaking that um, a bit. Now, I, I'm still going to have power in this system or in this world that they're in, but m- maybe, just maybe, they'll, there'll be a chance that they'll walk up the stairs and they'll come into my office and they'll, they'll break through in a way, you know, in a mm. new way in their own heart, in their own story. Um, we, uh, we're, we're an egalitarian um, place here, an mm. egalitarian seminary. Um, but women who come here are a lot of them are still only learning to find their voices and for use sure. their voices, right? Yeah. And um, for a woman to come upstairs and to say to me, 50-year-old Chuck, you know, this is what I'm experiencing. This is what I'm feeling. Empowerment. There's some growth. There's some freedom, right? Mm. Um, and so I, I think that that's a part of it. And um, and I this is why I love, by the way, St. Teresa of Avila, right? Because she she blows up kind mm. of all this, the power structures in her day, right? She She's subversive. Mm. Um, and she believes in the power of, of vulnerability and love that shows up e- even when these structures have been blown up, you know, yeah. and so and 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 calls people into a new kind of community, not based on laws and rituals, but based on love, um, yeah. compassion and and um, stewardship of resources and hospitality and generosity. Anyway, that's all that's the beginning of the answer. Um, those of us who have power and privilege need to begin to sacrifice some of it, surrender mm. some of it so that um, structures ch- change and institutions change. And mm. Yeah. I remember in, I think it was in Nowen's book, Reaching Out, when he talks about the three moves of the spiritual life and transforming hostility into hospitality. Yeah. And what a you know, that power really does create hostility, power structures that are meant to keep some people out and others protected really is about, is a, it's a hostile environment that doesn't provide a way for community. But when we can transform that, and all of us have bias, all of us have hostilities to certain groups or or people. I mean, if, if we don't, then you're just not human. And then, you know, we can't relate to you. So when we confront that and we transform it into going, how do I use my power? How do I, how do I transform this hostility of this structure into a place of hospitality for quote the other who ironic, I mean, it's just ourselves. We're just like, then they walk through the door and we're like, there I am, you know? Yeah. Can, Can I get religious for a second? Totally. Like, um, I mean, I, I really do think, um, I, I was thinking about it in terms of like Adam and Eve grasping and yet Jesus, on the other hand, um, you know, in Philippians, it, it talks about, he did not consider equality with God, something to be grasped oh, that's um, good. or exploited, mm-hmm. but made himself nothing empty. So there's a kind of a relinquishment, a surrendering, you know, um, a becoming a servant, becoming humble. And I have to wake up every morning and remind myself of the power that I have in my world and ask myself the question, what does it look like today to surrender, mm. to make myself humble? Like, because I can just show up here as the same old, you know, and people will give me, there are new students here now this year and they come into my office, Dr. DeGroat, you know, and I can hear from their voices and I can hear the tone of like respect and deference because I've mm. got a PhD and no, we're, we're just not going to do that, you know? <sighs> Um, I'm going to show up in another way. 
um, so that you can show up in another way, so that we can begin to live in community in another way. Mm-hmm. And I think that's how it begins to happen. But, you know, as we were talking about earlier, systems and structures, like Christianity Christianity is a very cozy relationship with, with power, yeah. power structures, empire, Christendom. Right. And um, until until we say, no, we're going to unplug from that mm. um, and deal with our shit, if I can be honest. Totally. Yeah. I, I think um, I think we're kind of, st- we're stuck in an abusive relationship yeah. until then, you yeah. know, corporately, I mean. Yeah. Chuck, man, I feel like we could talk forever. <laughs> I like, know. I have more questions. We've never met before, but I feel like there's a kindredness happening. Let's get yeah. a bottle of red wine <laughs> and let's just go for another hour. Um, yeah. We can't thank you enough. How can people find you? Yeah. Yeah, so like not, I, uh, not what's your address at home, but like if somebody- <laughs> my phone number is four one. Um, so I have a website. Uh, it's chuckdegroat.net, D-E-G-R-O-A-T.net. Um, and I blog some on all different kinds of things, not least narcissism there. Um, and um, and some other resources. Um, and I've written some books that are up there too. And I mean, uh, w- one of the things I'd say about that too is I wrote this book on narcissism, but I wrote this book on wholeheartedness too. Mm-hmm. Like I, I do think that there's a, we have to, re, I, I, I can become cynical and we have to have a vision of what it means to flourish, a That's vision good. of the good, a vision of vulnerability. And so anyway, that, that would be the best way to find me. Um, except maybe if you're in Holland, Michigan and you want to go out for a, um, cup of coffee in the morning or a martini in the evening are, are you do you have a tiktok presence are you in are you into that yeah like that's a, <laughs> no, no that's a thing no, the kiddies are doing. i've resisted that i am on snapchat though but. oh there you go you're ahead of us that's well, amazing uh, that's amazing uh, but i do have two teenage daughters so i practically have a tiktok presence so. and speaking of your teenage daughters when i got your book and then i went to your website and was just kind of looking at yeah. all the resources that you offer it's yeah. adorable that your girls are like the first to comment on your blogs do you know that oh yeah like when when i first started it i think like when i first got the website i think i think that they were the first to comment on like the about me page or something like daddy this is so cool yeah. or so i saw that and i was Aww. like oh, look at you guys i mean it was it yeah. was like melted my heart as a mom <laughs> yeah. i was like there's yeah. just nothing better than you i know, know i know that was well you know how this goes then i mean that was them 10 years ago <laughs> yeah. now, now it's like, Dad, can you erase that? That's right. so. Much. I love that. Our <laughs> our kids just hack our accounts. Yeah, our like, kids hack that. our accounts sometimes <laughs> yeah. and do silly yeah. posts. Well, yeah. thank you for bringing just this important awareness to yeah. to us, and and it's often um, so many of us have been abused by narcissists. So many of us um, may encounter and have to confront our own narcissistic tendencies. But I hope that as you listen to this, that you hear the hope of healing um, mm. in this podcast. That there, there is that grace does transform, and it does teach us to say no. Um, and so we we can do that in the context of community. So I, I just thank you, Chuck, for for reminding us of that. You yes, know, it's you, not all lost. You are a gift, man. Thank you. Yeah. Hey, thanks for joining the Jesus I Love podcast. We are so glad you have chosen to awaken hope and empower change with us. We want to remind you to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and leave us a review Yes, because your voice matters. It's how we get this message into the world. And lastly, be sure to follow Jesus Said Love on Instagram and Facebook for up-to-date info and visit the website at JesusSaidLove.com for how you can join the JF.
ESL fam. Until next time. Share the love. <laughs>